Good morning. Welcome. Good to see all of you again this week after what I think for many of us was a long week last week. So welcome back. Um, yeah, I just want to echo what Ben um, said a few moments ago. Just let us be in constant prayer over um, over all of the devastation that's hitting neighbors, hitting friends, hitting creation, whether that's Haiti or whether that's just a few miles to our east with the fires that continue to burn. Um, may we pray for safety and for success for those who are combating them. So if you were here last week, if you can remember that far back, um, we considered a theology of creation together. And if you weren't here last week, um, or if you can't remember if you were here last week, do not fret. (laughs) I will offer a recap because I think we probably all need it. Um, Let's begin with putting some of the Genesis creation account before us again. Um, So if you were here last week, see if you can notice some of the themes that we explored in our reading. I'll be reading Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4, and also chapter 2, verse 15. So if you have your Bible with you physically or on your phone, feel free to get that out now. And again, like last week, I'll be reading from the NRSV with some slight modifications to highlight the Hebrew. All right, let us begin. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. While the ruach, the breath, the spirit, the wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness God called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so God called the dome sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so the the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters, and every living creature that moves, of every kind of which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. 
God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, and the cattle of every kind, and the everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make a dom, an earthling from the Adamah, the earth. Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, God created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so God saw everything that God had made. And indeed, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that God had done. And God rested on the seventh day from all the work that God had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it, God rested from all the work that God had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Skipping to verse 15, the Lord God took the Adam and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Last week, we explored the Genesis one text where it all begins. And we found that and here I'll list the order of things that we discussed to jog your memory. We found that one, we are in the creator's world. Two, we are in a world that is therefore properly called creation. Its identity is that that is created by the creator. Three, creation is responsive. It is able to interact and and respond. Four, creation is wisely ordered. Five, creation is good and founded in peace. Six, creation is home to many good blessed creatures. And seven, creation in its fullness is very good and blessed by God for Sabbath rest. We also learned that all humanity is given a special status in creation. And with this status comes the unique responsibility of stewarding and serving creation, of ruling it in the image of God as modeled by Christ. And humanity is commissioned with this responsibility in the expectation that God will return and creation will be found and restored so that God may come and rule in it with all God's people and all God's creatures for all eternity. And this is good news. If this intrigues you or you'd like to learn more, feel invited to listen to last week's sermon on the website. It may add some depth to where we journey today. We considered that this good news ought to have bearing on our discipleship. 
Thomas Finger says that since God will transform the earth we now have, the earth must be precious to God, and proper stewardship of non-human nature is a task with eternal consequences. We consider the responsibility of ruling as representatives of God through the lens of Christ and the example that Christ gives us. We found that in ruling creation, we are called to till it and keep it, to care for it, to serve it, to sacrifice for its good. We learned that if we reflect God on earth as icons of God in the Imago Dei, we must rule as God rules and thus must seek justice, deliverance for the weak, and shalom. We must steward. But sadly, evidence abounds that we have by and large utterly failed in this calling. Humanity as a whole has not acted in ways that properly serve, protect, and care for the earth. In fact, we've acted violently against it, recklessly, selfishly, and foolishly. Just a sampling of statistics. Every year, the earth loses approximately 25 million acres of tropical forests due to deforestation. That's an area the size of Indiana, gone every year. Between 1980 and 1995, 200 million hectares of forests were cut down. That's an area larger than the size of Mexico. The main causes of deforestation are logging, ranching, plantation farming, cutting for fuel wood, and road construction. Increasingly, forests are being lost in North America due to unprecedentedly high rates of forest fires. Forests are naturally a major carbon sink, but deforestation has yielded a net increase of carbon emissions as trees are being chopped down. Thus, nature's natural carbon sinks are depleted, and as we deplete them, we're actually producing carbon that offsets their natural purpose. Even in the forests, our trees are dying due to human interference that modifies ground level and stratospheric ozone, soil acidity, nutrient distribution, through clear cutting, the list goes on. The Millennium Ecosystem Assessment reports that over the past few hundred years, humans have increased species extinction rates by as many as a thousand times background rates that were typical over Earth's history. That rate is presently estimated to be about three species per day, over 1,000 species per year. In the World Conservation Union's 2006 report of the 40,168 species of vertebrates, invertebrates, and plants that were assessed, 16,118 of them, or about 40%, qualified as threatened. That means either vulnerable, endangered, or critically endangered. We're experiencing an enormous human-caused decline in biodiversity across the globe. The IPCC reports that ocean warming, more frequent marine heat waves, ocean acidification, and reduced oxygen levels have been clearly linked to human interference and drastically affect ocean ecosystems and the communities that rely on them. In short, we are faced with exploding human population growth, increasing hunger, loss of biodiversity, deforestation, desertification, water scarcity, land degradation, accumulating waste, expanding energy consumption, acid rain, pollution, and an excess of atmospheric CO2. The earth is groaning. And one of the ultimate absurdities in this is that many of the people who supposedly are obedient to creator God act no differently than those who reject God and worship the idols of material affluence and consumption. 
Some even attempt to justify their behavior with scripture, citing a trust in God or a misguided belief that creation will simply be destroyed at the end of time. Our need for scripturally based just rule practices is obvious. So this week, let's take our gained knowledge from last week and consider what implications this has for our discipleship. How ought the call to stewardship and proper rule take form in our lives in this groaning world? For it is clear that it must take form. It is clear that we are fashioned in the Imago Dei and therefore must shoulder the associated responsibilities accordingly. Last week, we saw that God's example of ruling looks like executing justice, delivering the vulnerable, protecting the weak, walking in righteousness, and working towards the ecological value of shalom. God's example of proper rule is most clearly seen in Jesus, who says and shows that it is service and sacrifice. It's stewardship, especially because what we are given to rule over is not ours. We're taking care of it on behalf of another who we will answer to. And the stewardship is clearly articulated in Genesis 2.15 that we read just a moment ago. God puts the Adam in the garden to till it and keep it. To till the earth, abod in the Hebrew, means to serve the earth for its own sake. And to keep it, samar in the Hebrew, means to protect the earth as we would caringly guard something of value. We're told that God keeps us in the ironic blessing in number six, verses 24 through 26, where it says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. This is the same word, keep. We are to keep the earth as God lovingly and faithfully keeps us. Because stewardship is discipline, it is conviction, but ultimately, stewardship is an act of worship. For Christians, stewardship is simply a way that we respond to God's character and God's gifts with gratitude. Stewardship of creation is how we declare that God is creator and that creation is good, as God says it is. And really, it's in our stewardship or lack thereof that others will see whether we truly believe this or whether it is just empty words. Tom Reagan explains as follows. He says, we are expressly chosen by God to be God's vice regents in our day-to-day affairs in this world. That is, we are chosen by God to be as loving in our day-to-day dealings with the created order as God was in creating that order in the first place. In this sense, therefore, there is a morally relevant difference between human beings and every other creaturely expression of God. For it is only members of the human species who are given the awesome freedom and responsibility to be God's representatives within creation. It is therefore only we humans who can be held morally blameworthy when we fail to do this and morally praiseworthy when we succeed. Scripture makes clear that we are called to be stewards of the earth as a manifestation of obedience and worship. This means that how we live, our actions, our attitudes, our priorities, these should be oriented around what God says is valuable and what God calls us to do. From this conviction, we may now wonder together, what are the attitudes, priorities, and actions that are proper for good stewards? So let us turn back to our theology of creation and see. 
We're told in the opening lines of scripture that in the beginning, God created. The first thing we're told about God is that God is creator. Psalm 24 opens with the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. Psalm 95 says that in his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and the dry land which his hands have formed. And so we know that the earth is not ours. It is God's. God is the rightful ruler of creation. Humans are not creator. Humans are creatures along with the rest of creation. And like all creation, humans are finite. When we forget our creatureliness, we transgress appropriate limits and boundaries and in turn break relationships, whether that be relationship with God, relationship with each other, relationships within ourselves and relationships with the rest of creation. Today, we live in the God given reality of finitude, and we also live with the reality of sin. We must take this state seriously and as a result, act with seriousness, responsibility, and humility. As good stewards, we have a duty to think carefully, research diligently, tread cautiously, and consider the consequences of our actions. We must be honest and humble. When we fail to do this, we overestimate ourselves and act with arrogance and overconfidence. Ecological hubris has disastrous effects on creation. Humble people, on the other hand, are sincere, straightforward. They look at the best data that scientists and other experts can provide, and they look at it with sobriety and resist the urge to downplay issues or exaggerate solutions just to ease their own anxiety, to bolster their sense of mastery, or to feel more in control. They recognize limitations and seek to make best decisions with this limited view in mind. In short, good stewards are humble, sincere, and act with sober minds. Our theology of creation also shows that creation is wisely ordered and structured by God. God separates the waters to create sky, sea, land. God fills them each with their allotted creatures. Creation is limited. God has made creation with logic and boundaries. Creation is finite, just like us. There is not always more, and things are not simply thrown away whatever our consumeristic throwaway marketplace would encourage us to believe. The earth does not have an unlimited supply of resources, and it does not exist to satisfy the consumption and waste patterns of our growing population. And it's important to note here that God's word in Genesis 1:28 to humanity to be fruitful and multiply is not uniquely given to humans. God also tells the birds and the sea creatures to be fruitful and multiply. Humans do not have reproductive priority, at least according to Genesis 1. Also, this phrase is better interpreted not as a command, but as a blessing. If you look at the text, it says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply. God is blessing creatures with flourishing. This common interpretation that God gives humans a special command to procreate and increase at the expense of the rest of the planet and other creatures is a self-serving misinterpretation. Scripture makes clear that God wants all creatures to flourish, and there is no biblical basis for humanity to overstep our allotted place and strain the rest of creation. 
This gives us the ethical principle of sustainability and tells us that we should not deplete or damage what sustains us, nor should we hinder other creatures' ability to sustain themselves. Good stewards respect God's desire that all life flourishes and therefore value sustainability, and to do this, they seek wisdom. Boma Prediger, who who wrote this book that is excellent, just a plug, uh, defines wisdom as this. He says it is sound, practical judgment based on uncommon insight honed through long experience. For Christians, wisdom originates in the fear of God. Thus, the ecologically wise know that God is at the center of things and that God's good future includes the flourishing of the earth. Ecologically wise people demonstrate this future by fostering fruitfulness in their lives. If we do not pursue wisdom, we are inclined to act foolishly. Ecologically foolish people act as if the earth is endlessly exploitable and expendable. Good stewards also honor creation's creation's God-given limitations and act with self-restraint. They modify their desires for non-essentials and reject the sin of greed. They choose in ways both big and small to learn to say that I have what I need and I am content. Good stewards recognize that we have a duty to preserve non-renewable resources and conserve scarce resources. They limit our consumption and not overstep God-drawn lines in creation. Good stewards live within their means and not within their means as defined by the marketplace means as defined by creator God. They use wisely and sparingly so that others have what they need. Good stewards seek wisdom and live with self-restraint. Our theology of creation also reveals that creation is made by God, is valued and loved by God, is called good by God. If we listen carefully to the testimony of Genesis 1, we find that creation is valuable simply because God made it and sustains it and loves it. Creation does not exist for you or for me. It exists for God. God made the world in love and peace and tells humanity that our task is to take care of it. This calling extends to humanity as a collective and to each and every individual person. Good stewards learn from God's love and and take God's charge seriously. They act with benevolence towards creation. This means that they seek to refrain from doing harm and also look for ways to actively do good. When we do not actively seek benevolence, we commit sins both of commission and omission. We either actively do harm or passively allow harm to persist. We litter or carelessly disrupt habitats, or we don't advocate for protection or question another plot of forest turning into condos. When we do not cultivate benevolence, we become apathetic, oblivious, uninformed, and unconcerned about the havoc wrecked upon the earth. Wendell Berry noticed this apathy is as strong inside the church as outside it. He says Christian organizations to this day remain largely indifferent to the rape and plunder of the world and its traditional cultures. It is hardly too much to say that most Christian organizations are as happily indifferent to the ecological, cultural, and religious implications of industrial economies as are most industrial organizations. This behavior, however, does not come from an adequate understanding of the Bible and the cultural traditions that descend from the Bible. 
there are truly catastrophic discrepancies between biblical instruction and allegedly respectable Christian behavior. Good stewards are not apathetic, but act with benevolence towards creation. Good stewards also seek to act with righteousness and justice in order to protect and safeguard what God loves. They understand that in all things, true worship is to act with righteousness and for justice. And these virtues center the least of these and prioritize caring for them. The least of these certainly includes, but is not exclusive to humanity. God's obvious care for all creation and the ecosystemic concerns of just rule and shalom reveal that the least of these includes vulnerable humans, as well as the non-human creatures whose voices and concerns are largely silent to human ears, whose needs go unrepresented in corporate boardrooms and in the halls of Congress where decisions that often result in the plunder of creation are made. Good stewards seek to distribute care and resources according to need. They seek to act with justice. And when we do not pursue justice, we tend to act unjustly. We saw in Psalm 72 that the righteous ruler acts with justice towards both other humans and the land. And experience shows us that justice for the earth's creatures and for oppressed human communities often goes hand in hand. Charles Lee, commenting on a study of toxic waste facilities completed all the way back in 1987, concluded at the time that the racial composition of a community is the single variable best able to explain the existence or non-existence of commercial hazardous waste facilities in that area. Racial minorities, primarily African Americans and Hispanics, are strikingly overrepresented in communities with such facilities. Similar patterns between socioeconomic status and race in the U.S. reveal that lack of access to green spaces like parks and nature preserves is disproportionately higher in poor communities and communities of color. Much like the food deserts in many of these communities where there is limited or no access to grocery stores, there are also green deserts with lack of access to nature. Contrast this to the watershed preserves, parks, protected wetlands, and green spaces in our communities, and the average income brackets in our communities, and we can see that ecological sustainability and social justice must be seen as interdependent goals. Such interdependence is easily seen on a global scale as well. Globally, increased consumption in materially wealthy nations creates increased waste and depleted resources for already under-resourced populations including the presently over 1 billion nation with inadequate nutrition in the world. So if we care for humans who are treated unjustly as we are commanded to, we should also care for an exploited earth. For these various forms of oppression and injustice are interlinked. Good stewards courageously seek to bring justice and flourishing to all of the least of these on earth. And lastly, in seeking benevolence and justice, good stewards are people of hope. They eagerly yearn for God to come and complete shalom and reign in creation and set things right. But hope is not the same as presumptuousness, where we take a good future for granted and give ourselves license to do nothing about real pain and evil. Good stewards do not assume that ecological healing will be pain-free or demand nothing of us. They do not adopt the cavalier attitude that recycling and driving less and cutting down on energy consumption don't matter. Such an attitude is not genuine trust in God because it does not even address God. 
In fact, it blatantly disregards God's design for creation and God's delegation of responsibility to us. So good stewards live in hope, and hope is active. Humility, wisdom, self-restraint, benevolence, justice, hope. These are some, just some, certainly not all of the virtues that should mark our lives as we seek to be good stewards. How these virtues may manifest in your life is truly unlimited. Your desires to change and grow, your unique gifts and creativity and conviction and imagination, all of these are materials that the Holy Spirit will use to reveal how you are uniquely and wonderfully invited to be a good steward in creation. But caring for the earth does not have to be rocket science, although paying attention to leading climate scientists and their recommendations is also a wise practice. Virtues entail forming habits and making sacrifices. At its core, caring for creation comes down to this. Learn a new way of being that reduces harm and increases benefit, and practice it until it becomes a habit. And know that sacrificing something, some time, some convenience is often part of this. Not always, but often. Such sacrifices will become easier as our priorities, what matters most to us, changes from my comfort and ease and convenience to the flourishing of creation. Start small and expand. And for those of you who really like practical steps, don't you even worry, I have a list. Um, I'm going to read through it. Some things will be like, that's exciting. Some will feel overwhelming. Don't worry. If you want the list, I have it. I can give it to you but I'm going to read it. Okay. Ways that we can care for creation. Practical stuff. Number one, reduce your use of single-use items. Replace single-use disposable items with reusable ones. Stop buying plastic bottles of water. Get a reusable bottle or mug. Cut down on plastic baggies and use reusable containers. Replace paper towels with eco-towels. If you need something disposable, get something that's compostable and compost it when you're done. Recycle and do it right. Waste management mails out a lovely flyer that reminds you where the things go. It's hard at first, but then it's easy. It's fine. Compost. There is so much stuff that we put in the trash that belongs in the compost. Anything that's organic, food scraps, yard waste. All of this could be going to our local compost facility where it would get turned into healthy soil. Reduce your use of plastic and recycle the plastic that you use properly so it doesn't end up joining one of the many trash islands currently polluting our oceans. Note, plastic bags and bubble wrap can be recycled at grocery stores, Target, lots of local drop-off bins. So do that. Reduce the number of orders that you make online and the amount of fast shipping you request. Even if fast shipping is free, it actually has an enormous cost on creation. Group purchases together, reduce ordering online reduce ordering things we order way too much stuff number two reduce energy consumption replace incandescent light bulbs with cfl or led bulbs you'll only have to do it once <laughs> then you'll be done turn off lights when you're not using them walk or bike somewhere instead of driving them this is also really good for you so long as it's not smoky outside get efficient driving to do your errands this reduces carbon emissions and also frees up time for you Fly less. I feel like we all did a good job on this one this last year. It cuts down on fossil fuel use a lot. Wash clothes with cool water. Try air drying clothes. I think your clothes will last longer if you air dry them anyways. So it's a fun, 
fun project. Consider changing your clothing purchasing. Buy ethically sourced clothing where the people who make it are paid a decent wage and the materials are sustainably sourced rather than clothing that's made in sweatshops. Resist the temptation to buy into fast fashion. Try buying used items. There are lots of great ways to get clothes, appliances, and furniture used. Reduce the amount of water you use. Don't use the sink. Don't leave the sink running while you brush your teeth. Reduce the amount of red meat and dairy you consume. The meat industry is a huge contributor to greenhouse gases and also consumes tons of resources. Try meat alternatives. There are some very good ones at this point. Replacing one meat meal each week with a veggie-based one can save hundreds of dollars each year, lower greenhouse gas emissions, and also decrease your risk of heart disease and some cancer. If you have opportunity, invest in renewable energy sources. And this is fun. If you want to offset your carbon emissions, you can actually purchase offsets where you calculate the amount of your carbon emissions for a flight or that your home uses in a given year. And you can pay towards programs that are working to offset carbon emissions and care for creation. There are many really cool programs that simultaneously work for the flourishing of at-risk communities and of creation, both locally and around the world. So you can get really creative and find what speaks to you. Number three, reduce waste. Assess your grocery purchasing and food waste and reduce it. Eat leftovers. Notice what tends to go bad in your kitchen and modify what you buy. Daniel wants me to note that this is something we're working on. So there you go. (laughs) See if you can replace items that you would throw away. Again, nothing gets thrown away. But see if you can replace items that you would throw away with items that are reusable, recyclable, or compostable. How little can you put in your trash can each week? Because whatever goes in the trash is not thrown away. It's shipped down the street or across the ocean where it harms sea life or festers in landfills and trash mountains that cause illness and disease. Our trash doesn't just disappear once we don't see it anymore. Number four, get familiar with your home and cultivate natural spaces of beauty. Plant things, gardens for veggies, flower beds for hummingbirds, bees, and other essential pollinators. Plants are great carbon sinks and balance